0: God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Numbers twenty-three nineteen. Consider the things which move men to change their minds and alter their purposes, and then mark how utterly inapplicable such things are to the Almighty. Men form a plan and then cancel it through fickleness and inconstancy, but God is immutable. Men make a promise and then revoke it because of their depravity and untruthfulness, but God is infinitely holy and cannot lie. Men devise a project and fail to carry it through because of lack of ability or power, but God is omniscient and omnipotent. Men determine a certain thing for want of foresight, and because the unexpected intervenes, they are thwarted. But God knows the end from the beginning. Men change their schemes because the influence or threats of superiors deter them. But God has no superior or equal and fears none. No unforeseen occasion can arise which would render it expedient for God to change his mind. In Romans 8:28 we read of a company who are the called according to his purpose, and what that signifies the verses which immediately follow tell us. It was a purpose they could neither originate nor frustrate for whom he did foreknow with a knowledge of approbation contrast i never knew you matthew 7:23 he also did predestinate appoint and for arrange That divine predestination results in their being effectually called out of darkness into God's marvelous light and their being justified or accounted righteous before God because Christ's perfect obedience is reckoned to their account. And then, so infallibly certain is the accomplishment of God's purpose, the apostle added, And whom he justified, them he also, not will glorify, but glorified. God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, the immovable fixedness of his design, confirmed it by an oath. Hebrews 6.17 What more can we desire? The Holy One must forswear Himself before one of His own can perish. 4. The Everlasting Covenant of God Having set His heart upon a special people, God formed a purpose of grace toward them, and that purpose is attested and secured by formal contract. By express stipulation, the Eternal Three solemnly undertook for their heir of promise to do all for and in them, so that not one of them shall perish. I will make an everlasting covenant with them, that I will not turn away from them to do them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts, that they shall not depart from me. Jeremiah 32:40. How comprehensive are those promises? First, Jehovah assures his people that there shall be no alteration in his good will toward them, to that it might be objected. True, God will not turn away from them, but they may turn away from him, yea, utterly apostatize. Therefore, he here declares that he will put his fear in their hearts or grant them such supplies of grace as to preserve them from falling away. Were they to return to the service of Satan, he could not continue to do them good consistently with the holiness of his character, but he will preserve them in such a state that he may hold fellowship with them without any impeachment of his holiness. J. Dick. This covenant of grace is made with the elect in Christ before the foundation of the world, wherein he became their surety. Hebrews 7.22, undertaking to discharge all their liabilities and to make full satisfaction for them. Accordingly, God has promised the surety, I will put my laws into their mind and write them upon their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people, Hebrews 8:10. Those promises are of free grace, and there is no contingency or uncertainty about them, for they are yea and amen in Christ, 2 Corinthians 1, 20. Mark how God himself regards his engagement therein. My covenant will I not break, nor alter the thing that is gone out of my lips, Psalm 89.34 He will ever be mindful of his covenant. Psalm 111.5 Oh, what grounds for confidence, for joy, for praise is there here. Therefore may each believer affirm with David, He hath made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure. For this is all my salvation and all my desire. 2 Samuel 23.5 For the mountains shall depart, and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from thee, neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed, saith the Lord, that hath mercy on me. Isaiah 54.10 To summarize what has yet been before us. If any saint were eventually lost, it could only be because the being and character of God himself had undergone a change for the worse. His affections must alter, so that one whom he loved must become the object of his hatred. His purpose concerning him must change, so that whereas he appointed him to salvation, he must consign him to destruction. He must reverse the promises made and the blessings bestowed upon him. His faithfulness must fail so that his word can no longer be relied upon. Thus it is obvious that the alternative to what has been set forth above is unthinkable and impossible. The wisdom of God requires that in appointing the end, the glorification of his people, He has also ordained that the means thereto are sufficient, and his power ensures that those means shall prove effectual. Every perfection of God guarantees that all his people shall get safely to heaven. 5. The Irrepealable Promises of God the exceeding great and precious promises Second Peter one four, which God hath made to his people, have been likened unto streams along which his covenant engagements run, for they all go back to and have their source in that eternal compact which he made with the elect in Christ. Their surety undertook to do certain things for them, and in return thereof God agreed that certain things should be bestowed upon them on whose behalf he transacted. What those things were that God stipulated to impart unto those Christ represented are revealed in the various promises which he has made unto them. Those promises are God's free and gracious dispensations or discoveries of his good will unto the elect in Christ in a covenant of grace. Therein, upon his veracity and faithfulness, he engages himself to be their God, to give his Son unto them and for them, and his Spirit to abide with and in them, guaranteeing to supply everything that they need in order to make them acceptable before him, and to bring them all into the everlasting enjoyment of himself. Those promises are free and gracious as to the rise or origin of them being given to us merely by the good pleasure of God and not in return for anything demanded of us. That which is of promise is opposed to that which is in any way demanded or procured by us. Romans 4, 13 and 14. Galatians 3, 18 these promises are made unto us as sinners and under no other qualification whatever it being by sovereign mercy alone that any are delivered out of their fallen and depraved estate The promises are given unto them as shut up under sin. Galatians 3.22 These discoveries of God's good will are made known in Christ as the sole medium of their accomplishment and as the alone procuring cause of the good things contained in them. For all the promises of God in him are yea and in him. Amen. Second Corinthians one twenty, in and by Christ mediation. They have all their confirmation and certainty to us. The foundation of our assurance of their accomplishment is the character of their maker. They are the engagements of him who cannot lie. Titus one two, Hebrews six, seventeen and eighteen. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but his word shall endure forever. The grand fountainhead promise from which all the others flow is that God will be the God of his people. Jeremiah 24.7, Jeremiah 31.33, Ezekiel 11.20 In order that he may be our God, two chief things are required. First, that all breaches and differences between him and us shall be removed, perfect peace and agreement made, and we rendered well-pleasing in his sight. Sin must be put away, and everlasting righteousness brought in. In order to this, Christ acted as our surety, our priest, our redeemer, and has become our peace. Ephesians 2.14 Being of God, made unto us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. 1 Corinthians 1.30 He gave himself for the church, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church. Ephesians 5, 25 and 26. Second, that we might be kept meet for communion with him as our God, and for our eternal enjoyment of him as our portion. From this flows the promise of the Holy Spirit, Acts 1, 5, Acts 2, that he would exercise unto us all the acts of his love and work in us, that obedience which he required from and accepts of us in Jesus Christ, so preserving us unto himself. This promise of the Spirit in the covenant is witnessed in Isaiah fifty nine, twenty-one, Ezekiel thirty six, twenty-seven, etc. From the fountain promise that God will be our God in covenant relationship, flow the two broad streams, that He would give Christ for us and the Holy Spirit to us, and out from these two main streams issue a thousand rivulets For our refreshment from those two streams come forth all the blessings Christ hath purchased for us and all the graces that the Holy Spirit produces in the elect by the first of which they are made acceptable unto God and by the latter of which they have an enjoyment of him. All the promises of mercy and forgiveness, faith and holiness, obedience and perseverance, joy and consolation, affliction and deliverance, issue from them. Thus it follows, that whoever hath an interest in one promise, hath an interest in them all, and in the fountainhead from which they flow. Have we a hold on any promise? That is by the Holy Spirit and from him to Christ, and thence unto the bosom of the Father. Hence also the most conditional of the promises are ultimately to be resolved into the absolute and unconditional love of God. He who promises to us life upon believing works faith in us, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. Second Peter 1.3 Most of the above is condensed from John Owen, the Puritan. Let us cite a few of the particular promises wherein the Lord has engaged Himself to grant such supplies of His Spirit, that we shall be supported against all opposition and preserved from such sins as would separate any of His saints from Him. For the Lord loveth judgment and forsaketh not His saints. They are preserved forever. Psalm 37, 28. May the trust in the Lord shall be as Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abideth forever. As the mountains are round about Jerusalem, so the Lord is round about his people from henceforth even forever. Psalm 125, 1 and 2. Even to your old age I am he, and even to whore Cares. Will I carry you? I have made, and I will bear. Even I will carry and deliver you. Isaiah 46, four. For the mountains shall depart, and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from them, neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed, saith the Lord, that hath mercy on thee. Isaiah 54.10. He shall confirm you unto the end. First Corinthians 1 Corinthians 1.8 I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. Hebrews 13.5 The same divine protection unto everlasting bliss is confirmed by many assertory passages as well as promissory Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Psalm 23, 4 I am continually with thee. Thou hast holden me with thy right hand. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel, and afterward receive me to glory. Psalm 73:23 and 24 The Lord shall deliver me from every evil work, and will preserve me unto his heavenly kingdom. 2 Timothy 4.18 They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. 1 John 2.19 God must forsake his integrity before he would abandon one of his people. But that cannot be... Faithful is he that calleth you, who will also do it. 1 Thessalonians 5.24 The Lord is faithful, who shall establish you and keep you from evil. 2 Thessalonians 3.3 3. They who affirm that any of God's children will perish are guilty of the fearful sin of charging him with perjury. 6. The gracious acts of God toward his people. These are of such a nature as ensure their everlasting salvation. In addition to his acts of electing them, making a sure covenant with his son on their behalf, and the putting of them into his hands with all grace and glory for them, we may mention the adoption of them into his family. This is an inestimable blessing, little understood today. It is a sonship in law, God bestowing upon his elect the legal status of sons. This is by Jesus Christ, Ephesians 1, 5. Since Christ is son of God, essentially, and the elect are united to him, they are the sons-in-law of God. Christ as God-man was set up as a prototype, and we are modeled after him. As a woman becomes a man's daughter-in-law by his son's betrothing himself to her, so we are sons-in-law unto God, and inalienable legal title, as the term adoption plainly signifies by marriage union. It is by their relation to the Son of God that the elect are the sons of God. It is not by faith they become sons. Rather does faith... Manifest them to be such. Because ye are sons, not to make us such, God hath sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Ah, the Father. Galatians 4, 6 Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God. 1 John 3, 1 from thence flows all our dignities and honors. If sons, Greek, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, Romans eight seventeen. Is Christ King and Priest? So also are we kings and priests unto God and His Father, Revelation one six. Is Christ Jehovah's fellow, Zechariah thirteen seven? So are we Christ. Fellow's Psalm forty five seven. Is Christ god's firstborn psalm eighty nine twenty seven so we read of the Church of the firstborn hebrews twelve twenty two Even now are we the sons of God, but it doth not yet appear what we shall be. It is not yet made manifest before the universe, but we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like him first John three two And why are we so assured? Because whom God did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Romans eight thirty. Because God predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, Ephesians 1, 5, by sovereign grace and not because of anything of ours, nothing can possibly sever or annul this wondrous relationship. The justification of God's people. This is also a legal act. It takes place in the supreme court of heaven, where God sits as the judge of all the earth. The believing sinner is measured by the holy law and pronounced righteous. Of old the question was asked, But how shall man be just before God? Job 9.2 for the law requires nothing less than perfect and perpetual obedience, and pronounces him accursed who continues not in all that it enjoins. Galatians 3.10. Had that question been left for solution to finite intelligence, it had remained unsolved forever. How could God show mercy, yet not abate one iota of what his justice requires? How could he treat with the guilty as though they were innocent? How could he righteously bestow the reward on those who merited it not?' How could he pronounce righteous those who were unrighteous? Such a thing seems utterly impossible. Nevertheless, divine omniscience has solved these problems, solved them without tarnishing his honor. Yea, unto his everlasting glory and to our everlasting admiration. It is the setting forth of this grand display of the divine wisdom which constitutes the supreme blessedness of the gospel according to the terms of the everlasting covenant Christ became the sponsor of his people when the fullness of the time was come God sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law Galatians 4 4 to the law the incarnate son rendered a complete and flawless obedience thereby magnifying and making it honorable Isaiah 42 21 The divine dignity of his person bestowed more honor on the law by his obedience thereto than it had been dishonored by all our manifold disobedience. Having perfectly fulfilled the law, Christ then suffered its curse in his people's stead, thereby blotting out their sins. That perfect obedience of Christ is reckoned to our account the moment we believe on Him, so that believers may say, The Lord, our righteousness. Jeremiah 23, 6 On the ground of Christ, Righteousness legally becoming ours, God pronounces us justified romans three twenty four romans five nineteen second corinthians five twenty one and therefore, because it is God that justifieth, who is he that condemneth romans eight thirty three and thirty four Those justified by God can never be unjustified. The righteousness by which they are justified is an everlasting one. Daniel 9.24 The sentence of exoneration passed upon them in the high court of heaven can never be revoked by man or devil. They have a title to everlasting glory and cannot come into condemnation. 7. The death of Christ. When Adam, the federal head as well as the father of the human race, apostatized, the elect equally with the non elect fell in him, and thus they are by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Ephesians 2 3. From that dreadful and direful state, they are recovered by the mediation of Christ and the operation of the Spirit the latter being a fruit of the former. We have briefly touched upon the mediation of Christ in the two preceding paragraphs, but as this is of such a vital concern to our present theme, it requires to be considered in more detail. A large field is here open before us. But we can now take only a brief glance at it. Once again, we would point out that what we are about to advance can have little weight with Arminians who erroneously suppose that the mediatory work of Christ was general or universal in its character and design. But to those who have learned from Holy Writ that the redemption of Christ is definite and particular a specific for a specific people, there will be found here a sufficient answer to every accusation of Satan and an assurance which none of the tribulations of life can shake. Who is he that condemneth? The apostle asks. It is Christ that died, is his triumphant reply. Romans 8.34 the force of that reply turns upon the fact that Christ's death is a substitutionary and atoning one. For the transgression of my people was he stricken, says God. Isaiah 53, 8 For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. 1 Peter 3:18. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Isaiah 53, 5 Jehovah laid upon Christ the iniquities of his people. Isaiah 53, 6 And then cried, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts. Might the Shepherd, Zechariah 13:7. On the cross, Christ rendered to God a full satisfaction for the sins of all those whom the Father gave to Him, being a merciful and faithful High Priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation, Greek, for the sins of the people, Hebrews 2. Thirteen, because Christ was made a curse for sin. Galatians three thirteen. Not but blessing is now our portion. All for whom Christ died shall most certainly be saved, because he paid the full price of their redemption as a surety stands in the room of the person he represents. The latter reaps the benefit of what the surety has done in his name, so that if his debt has been paid by the surety, the creditor can no more demand payment from him. Since Christ made full reparation to God's law, making complete atonement for the sins of his people, then it would be a flagrant violation of divine justice if ever one of them should be punished for the same. Christ has purchased his people by his precious blood. Then can we suppose that God will suffer his most avowed enemy to rob his son of any of them? Were that to happen, the Redeemer's name would be rendered meaningless. For God himself said, Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Matthew 1.21 Were that to happen, it could not be true that the Redeemer shall see of the travail of his soul and be satisfied. Isaiah 53.10 Since all the believers' sins were laid upon Christ and atoned for, what is there that can possibly condemn him? And if there be nothing, how can he be cast into hell? True, none can reach heaven without persevering in holiness, but since the atonement of Christ possesses divine virtue and is of everlasting efficacy, all for whom it was made must and shall persevere in holiness. God's wrath against his people was exhausted upon their substitute. The black cloud of his vengeance was emptied at Calvary. When I think of my sin, it seems impossible that any atonement should ever be adequate. But when I think of Christ's death, it seems impossible that any sin should ever need such an atonement as that. There is in the death of Christ enough and more than enough. There is not only a sea in which to drown our sins, but the very tops of the mountains of our guilt are covered. C.H. Spurgeon Therefore is God able to save unto the uttermost them that come unto him by Christ. Hebrews 7.25 Yea, even though they have sinned, as did Manasseh or Saul of Tarsus. Christ has removed everything which could cause separation between God and his people. First, he has taken away the guilt of their sins that it shall never prevail with the lord to turn from them christ hath obtained eternal redemption hebrews 9:12 for them not a transient and unstable redemption but an abiding and efficacious one in consequence thereof god declares their sins and iniquities will i remember no more hebrews 10:17 how could he do so seeing that the redeemer was to Make an end of sins, Daniel nine twenty four. as to the controversy of them between God and those for whom he died. Christ has so satisfied God's justice and fulfilled his law that no sentence of condemnation can be pronounced against them, and therefore they must infallibly be saved. Second, as Christ removed that which alone might turn God from believers, So he has annulled that which might cause them to depart from God. Neither indwelling sin, Satan, or the world can so prevail as to make them totally fall away. Christ has destroyed Satan's right to rule over them. Colossians 2.15 Hebrews 2.14 And he has abolished his power by binding him. Matthew 12.29 And therefore are we assured sin shall not have dominion over you romans 6:14 how could it since the holy spirit himself indwells us since christ bore our sins and was condemned in our place since by his expiatory death the claims of divine justice are answered and the holiness of the divine law is maintained who can condemn those for whom he died Oh, what security is this for the believer in Jesus? Standing beneath the shadow of the cross, the weakest saint can confront his deadliest foe, and every accusation alleged and every sentence of condemnation uttered he can meet by pointing to him who died. In that one fact he sees the great debt canceled, the entire curse removed, the grand indictments, Quashed, and no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus are words written as in letters of living light upon the cross. Octavius Winslow, 8. The Resurrection of Christ. It seems strange that so many receive more comfort at the cross than they do at the empty grave of Christ, for Scripture itself hesitates not to say, If Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, ye are yet in your sins. 1 Corinthians 15:17. A dead Savior could not save. One who was himself vanquished by death would be powerless to deliver sin's slaves. Here is one of the chief defects of Romanism. Its deluded subjects are occupied with a lifeless Christ, worshippers of a crucifix. Nor are Protestant preachers above criticism in this matter, for only too often many of them omit the grandest part of the Evangel by going no further than Calvary. The glorious gospel is not fully preached until we proclaim a risen and victorious Redeemer, 1 Corinthians 15, through 3 Acts 5:31. Christ was delivered up to death for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. Romans 4.24 And as the Apostle goes on to declare, For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled we shall be saved by his life. Romans 5.10 What avail would it have been that Christ died for his people if death had conquered and overwhelmed him? Had the grave held him fast, he had been a prisoner still. But in rising from the tomb, Christ made demonstration of his victory over sin and death. Thereby he was declared to be the Son of God with a power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Romans 1. 4. For to this end Christ both died and rose, and revived that he might be Lord both of the dead and living. Romans 14.9. Christ's sacrificial work was finished at the cross, but proof was needed of its divine acceptance. That proof lay with him who was pleased to bruise him and put him in grief. And by raising the Redeemer, God furnished incontestable evidence that all his claims had been met. The death of Christ was the payment of my awful debt, his resurrection, God's receipt for the same. It was the public acknowledgement that the bond had been canceled. Christ's resurrection sealed our justification. It was necessary to give reality to the atonement and to provide a sure foundation for our faith and hope. Since God is satisfied, the trembling sinner may confide and securely repose upon the work of a triumphant Savior. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. Yea, rather, that is risen again. Romans eight thirty four. Here the resurrection of Christ is presented as the believers of security against condemnation. But how does the former guarantee the latter? There is a causal connection between the two things. First, because Christ rose again, not simply as a private person, but as the surety, the head and representative of all his people. It has not been sufficiently recognized and emphasized that the Lord Jesus lived, died, and rose again as the firstborn among many brethren, as all whom the first Adam represented fell when he fell, died when he died, so all whom the last Adam represented died when he died, and rose again when he arose. God quickened us together with Christ and hath raised us up together, Ephesians 2, 5 and 6. Risen with Christ, Colossians 3, 1, is judicially true of every believer. The law can no more condemn him. He has been fully and finally delivered from the wrath to come. Infallibly certain and absolutely secure is he by virtue of his legal union with the risen Savior. Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. Romans 6, 9, nor over me, for his deliverance was mine. The second death cannot touch me second because there is a vital union between Christ and his people said the Lord Jesus I am the resurrection and the life he that believeth on me though he were dead yet shall he live and whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die John eleven twenty five and 26 nothing could possibly be plainer or more decisive than that Spiritual resurrection makes the believer one with him who is alive forevermore. So that he is forever beyond the reach of death. Well then may we exclaim with the Apostle. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who according to his abundant mercy. Hath begotten us again unto a living hope. By the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. First to Peter 1 Peter three. Regeneration or being begotten by God is the communication to the soul of the life of the risen Christ. A faint yet striking illustration of this is seen in our awakening each morning out of slumber while our head sleeps. Every member of the body sleeps with it, but the head awakes and awakes first, and with that awakening each member awakens also, after the head yet in union with it. Thus it is with the mystical body of Christ the head was first quickened, and then in God's good time his life is imparted to each of his members, and before any member could perish the head must die. Third, because as Christ, as our surety, here so He is our representative on high, and as He endured our penalty, so justice requires that we should enjoy His fullness. Accordingly, we read. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Hebrews thirteen twenty and 21. Note well the coherence of this passage. It is in his character as the God of peace he thus acts. Having been pacified or propitiated, God brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, not as a private person, but in his official character as the shepherd, and that in fulfillment of covenant stipulation and promise. In consequence thereof, God makes perfect, or complete, in every good work, the sheep, preserving and sanctifying them by working in them that which is well-pleasing in His sight, and this through Jesus Christ, or in other words, by communicating to His members the grace, the life, the fullness which is in their head. 9. The Exaltation of Christ there is a little clause, but one of vast purport, which the apostle added to, yea, rather, that is risen again, namely, who is even at the right hand of God, Romans 8:34. That brief sentence is frequently overlooked, yet it is it one which also guarantees the safety and perpetuity of the church. The ascension of Christ is as vital and cardinal a part of the truth as is his death and resurrection, and provides the same rich food for faith to feed upon. As it was not possible for death to hold him, so it was not fitting for the earth to retain Christ. He who humbled himself and became obedient unto death has been highly exalted and given a name which is above every name. Philippians 2.9 The head which once was crowned with thorns is crowned with glory now. A royal diadem adorns the mighty victor's brow. Christ is now in heaven as an everlasting mediator, as a glorified high priest over the house of God, as the sceptered king ruling with sovereign sway, all things in heaven and earth, angels and principalities and powers being made subject to him, First Peter three twenty two, 22. And Christ has entered heaven in our nature, in our name, on our behalf.
1: This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail order catalog, Thirty-seven thirty by fax at seven eight zero four six eight ten ninety six, or by mail at forty seven ten thirty seven A Avenue, Edmonton. That's E D M O N T O N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A capital B, Canada, T six L three T five.